0: Hi again, everyone. This is Mark Movsesian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's. I'm joined again by my friend and co-director of the Center, Mark DiGirolami, for another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. This is our first episode of the new year, the new academic year, and we're delighted to have with us today Tom Berg, uh, now, normally, Tom, we, we talk about the Supreme Court and the upcoming cases. So you're taking the place of, of the Supreme Court today. So uh, I hope you feel I hope you feel honored by that. Wow. So, uh,
1: I sometimes feel like I have nine different personalities. So maybe that's what's OK.
0: Well, we'll try to get on. <laughs> we will try to get through all of those personalities today, I guess. So we uh, we're joined by Tom Berg, who teaches con law, religious liberty and intellectual property courses as well as the Religious Liberty Appellate Clinic at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Uh, In the clinic, he supervises students who write briefs in major religious liberty cases. Uh, Tom combines his advocacy in the Religious Liberty Appellate Clinic with scholarship. He's one of the nation's leading experts on religious liberty and law and religion. He's the author of six books, including a leading casebook called Religion and the Constitution, which he's written with Mike McConnell and Christopher Lund. And actually both Mark and I have used that book in our law and religion classes here at St. John's. And Tom has been a friend of the center from the beginning. He's been a participant in symposiums that we've hosted on comparative law and religion uh, in Rome. I think Tom was one, I remember we hosted you at. And he's also been uh, a participant in our tradition project. But he's here today to talk about none of those things particularly, but rather about his really interesting new book, Religious Liberty in a Polarized Age, which was just published recently from Eerdman. So welcome, Tom. Glad to have you with us.
1: Wonderful to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us, Tom. It's great to have you.
0: Well, Tom, let's get right into the questions about your book. I think it's fair to say when I read your book anyway, uh, the message I got from it was that the book is about the bitterness of our political polarization and how religious liberty disputes arise from that polarization, but also contribute to that polarization. And yet you say that religious liberty has the potential to calm things down. So what's your argument in a nutshell? How how can religious liberty tamp down the bitter partisan feelings that we observe all around us?
1: So it's essentially an argument that religious liberty has played that role in the past. And in fact, this is the historical Origin, or at least one of the key historical origins of religious liberty in the West, uh, in, uh, in Europe and America. Uh, historically, coercive impositions on people's religious practices, they're living out their religious beliefs, uh, cause suffering uh, because people adhere to those practices. They stick with them in the face of coercion. They, at, at the extreme, they become martyrs uh, and, 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 and they suffer. Uh, as a result. And uh, that suffering and the prospect of suffering creates fear and creates anger uh, among the folks who are who are subject to it or may be subject to it. And then it also tends to, when they have some possibility of power, to produce retaliation, to generate retaliation, or anticipatory retaliation against the other side. I got to get them before they get me. This is what happened in the cycle of religious wars in uh, Reformation era Europe, uh, you know, particularly in England, where it's Catholics and Protestants, well, then eventually among, among the Anglicans, but, uh, but Catholics and Protestants particularly, right? It's the, 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 uh, uh, going after dissenters under Henry VIII, and then when Henry VIII switched, uh, switches, then we go after uh, uh, Catholics, uh, Thomas More becomes a martyr to conscience, but of course Thomas More, before he was a martyr to conscience, helped uh, uh, in the, in the uh, you know, coercion uh, and, and killing of, uh, of Protestants. Uh, and then the cycle continued on throughout, the, throughout uh, 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 English history, right? So religious liberty was at least significantly the solution to that cycle. That's what Madison says in the Memorial and Remonstrance. Torrents of blood have been spilt in the old world uh, by the attempts of the secular arm to suppress difference in religious opinions, re- religious liberty it was the cure. It doesn't eliminate religious differences, nor should it, nor can it, but it takes the government out of them and thereby uh, eradicates their harmful effects on the body politics. So I think we're in a soft version of that problem today, of that cycle, uh, conservative Christians fear the impositions that um, are coming on them and have already come on them uh, from progressive laws, and therefore they say things like, liberalism simply can't work. It's not possible to have a liberal society, at least as liberalism has developed. We must win the titanic fight. We must finally uh, prevail. Um, uh, Muslims uh, have become a symbol of that uh, to many conservatives or uh, too, many, too many evangelicals at least, Muslims have become a symbol of that loss of cultural security in the United States. And therefore we've seen uh, uh, efforts against Muslims among evangelicals. Uh, progressives then reply to this, of course, uh, that you're, you're intolerant. This just confirms the intolerance that we already knew that started us after you in the first place. And therefore we have to double down. And therefore, because progressives are going to double down, uh, religious conservatives have to double down on stopping the uh, progressives or stopping LGBTQ rights and so on. Um, And and you have the cycle. Protection will reduce that fear. It has that effect. Protection of religious liberty is only presumptive, of course, there are limits on it, but if there's strong protection, it can reduce that fear. But it also has to have two other features that I say. It has to extend to other to all faiths. At least the presumption of significant protection for your religious practices has to ex- extend to all faiths. And number 2 it has uh to take account of other important interests and ones that I talk about particularly are LGBTQ uh rights. That yep. means sorry, I I, I sure yeah, I just quite, that means uh, some boundaries on religious exemptions, as there must be. It also means, and at various places in the book, I argue for this, um, for both anti-discrimination protections, enactment of of laws uh, with significant religious exemptions.
0: Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but as you were talking, so it seems to, I guess it's fair to say that your argument in favor of religious liberty is, is really a pretty pragmatic one, right? Which is, this is the way to calm things down it, and I, I did recognize definitely it came from Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance but is it fair to say that your argument it's more it's more rooted in pragmatism and social peace than it is in, I don't know identity issues or you know metaphysical issues or libertarian issues. is that fair to say?
1: Well there's three arguments in the middle of the book for strong religious freedom and the first one I would say is a, is a personal identity. Uh, argument the importance of religion in the in the believers uh, life and I try to make an analogy to the importance of of uh, relationships for same sex partners in an effort to 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 try to create sympathy across these these ideological lines, but I do very much think that that there is a strong argument uh, based on personal identity for religious freedom so it's not that that's not in the book, Um, I also am not just saying. We should do whatever will reduce. I'm sorry, whatever will reduce division, whatever will create social peace, whatever that is, because that could lead to you know suppressing people. Maybe on the whole, it would be better to suppress. um, You know, in in many places, that would like be an easier thing to tell the conservative Christians in Massachusetts or whatever to just go away and keep quiet. So it's not simply social peace. It rather goes back to the, the the the. the connection between these two that there is a very important human deep human impulse here to seek um, ultimate truth to seek a relationship with the divine that is a central part of human identity it has been it always will be people suffer when they're prevented from doing that and that suffering then leads on to the cycles that cause social problems as well
2: so tom maybe i could just ask on the question of identity that it, it, you it can't possibly be true that all identities are captured by this argument because all identities are, that's just sort of too big, right? You know, if, um, uh, you you know, all identities could not possibly be encompassed within uh, the kind of sort of arrangement of, of peace and negotiation in this way. So what is it about um, religious identity and, the one that you make the most direct con- connection to is LGBTQ plus identity. That ma- that, in your view, makes these most uh, a similar and b um, uh, how to put it worth worth protecting uh, by comparison with let's say other identities. Um, uh, you know what what's the what's the way in which in which these two have such special salience and similarity that, that you kind of put them at the, as, at the center of the book as each equally worth protecting.
1: Yeah. Um, so let, let's start off with religion. Uh, I, the, um, a, 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 a modern definition of religion that tries to expand religion beyond the, con- the concept of theism uh, is, uh was done by Judge uh, Arlen Adams in a, in a couple of cases, including one involving John Africa, the prisoner in the man in Philadelphia who had a vegetarian diet in a, in a prison. The question was, did he have a religious claim to receive vegetarian uh, vegetarian foods? Um, and that the the, the definition there uh, that, that Judge Adams used uh, was that religion is about ultimate matters. Uh, and is compre- is comprehensive in its focus uh, and so we we're we're dealing with uh, with with thought about the the ultimate meaning of life, about the divine, about the, the 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 force the the person, the entity that that created us, that created the world, that sustains or that is you know the sort of the ultimate uh, meaning uh, and also tends to be, religion tends to be, because of that, uh, comprehensive in its nature. Um, as uh, as I write in the book and others have said this, there really is no other institution like um, religion that does all the different things in the serious believer's life. And, and, and for religious exemptions, we are usually talking about serious believers, people who are serious enough that they're willing to take the risk of challenging the law in order uh, you know and not just going along with it um but you know the raising of children the uh the receiving of moral guidance from uh, a, a leader the the um, ins- inspiration uh service weekly service um uh, you know or maybe you know more often that than than that the the number of things that are combined in the t- in as a you know as a a, as as a categorical matter not in every case but the number of things that are combined in a religion as uh, in the in the category uh is it's quite unusual uh and that gives rise i think to the to to an arg- argument that the, that the kind of suffering that the religious believer uh experiences is likely to be particularly sharp we are talking about the loss of the ability to live in harmony with or according to the commands of whichever way you want to put it the ultimate Uh, and we're talking about something that affects the believer throughout their lives being unable to follow your faith in one way is not just an isolated thing it is a part of a web of things that order your life well the two the other Right that I talk about same sex marriage and same sex couples is not exactly the same, but certainly the marriage relationship and the partner relationship is pervasive in one's life, the ability to live. uh, Together with raise a family with care for. um, You know meet and present oneself in society with. A partner is a pervasive aspect of people's lives and I think we've seen from experience that both of these rights and both of these practices religion and same sex relationships have proved to be very powerful in people's Mm -hmm. lives and and persistent.
0: So, Tom, I want to, if I can, uh, follow up with something you just said a second ago about the definition of religion. You were talking about Judge Adams' uh, definition, the, the kind of analogical definition, and, and you talked about comprehensiveness and, and sort of, you know, depth or intensity of, of, of belief. But there's another uh, factor, too, that Adams talked about, and also Kent Greenawalt spoke about, he kind of channeled Judge Adams in the legal academy here, and that is a kind of institutional religion or group religion. So I want to talk a little bit about this. is, is one of my hobby horses, as, as Mark knows. I write a lot about this. Um, you argue in your book that there are good reasons to extend protections for religion to as wide a range of deeply held moral views as possible. You say atheism, agnosticism should be covered, but how about the kind of non-institutional idiosyncratic religion? I'm talking here, of course, about the rise of the nuns. These are people who Many people in America today, I think like 60 million people, say that they don't have a formal a formal religious identity, but they nonetheless have deep spiritual beliefs. Um, we saw in a number of the COVID cases, some of these people were seeking religious exemptions and courts, by and large, were willing to treat these people as exercising a religion. But there was some question about that. And I wonder, you know, first of all, do you think I'm right? This is going to be a problem going forward with so many Nuns in America, and if it's a problem, uh, would nuns also, with these idiosyncratic beliefs, be within your definition of of religion, meriting free exercise protection as well?
1: So, so yes, to the extent the idiosyncratic belief is a uh, sort sort of meets the test of ultimacy and comprehensiveness, uh, I, I think we have to extend the same. We we have. To we have to call we, we have to call it a religion. We should call it a religion, um, and it will be interesting to see how how often those kinds of claims come up. Uh, you're right that they have, uh, and um, and they and they will. And the more people there are uh, uh, following idiosyncratic spiritual beliefs, um, the the more they will. Uh, there's you know there there's a less of a tendency i think for a uh, a more fluid kind of belief to generate the sort of strong reaction or strong moral duties or strong moral imperatives i don't want to use commands or you know religious requirements because that 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 might suggest only that so only certain theological views but but to generate the kind of strong moral imperative that would cut against uh, a law. Uh, But we'll see how often that happens. It'll also be interesting to see how many, how much the nuns uh, NONES develop institutions, right? I think that, that, for example, the atheist churches are quite yeah, interesting the, 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 uh, that, that, that formed uh, a few years ago. I don't know that any of them are still going. It to some extent was a failed effort, but to try to create the kind of features of institutional religion in these more individualistic forms. I imagine that that will happen more and more.
0: Well, it's interesting you mention that because uh, Mark knows I've actually written about this. I have a relative, uh, my great-granduncle, who started one of these atheist churches in the in the late nineteenth century, and it didn't didn't last uh, past him. Yeah, they kind of they kind of merged into the Unitarians. But, but so, what was what was that group? It was the he called it I forget the name. It was in Chicago, the Rationalist Society of Chicago, something like that. He had thousands of people at one point who were following him. But over time, found it just very difficult to keep it up, and as I say, eventually merged into the Unitarian Universalists. Sure. But j- just to finish with the nuns, I mean, Stephen Collis at University of Texas, he and I have debated this. He agrees with you. He thinks that actually nuns are unlikely to to generate the kind of strong convictions that will require them to dissent from civil law. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But I know Mark has some questions Absolutely, too. I actually, get to and, Mark. Mark.
2: and I'm 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 with Mark on this question and. Don't find atheist churches interesting. I find them depressing and scary and <laughs> and and suggestive of the problems maybe with with an approach like yours, a very a very generous and 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 liberal in the sort of classical sense of approach. But I guess maybe the 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 point at which my question arises on is on the issue of exemption, which, which has really ballooned. It's uh, the, the, the number of requests for exemptions that we've seen, particularly in the, in the post in the COVID and post COVID period, but not only those for, for a variety of other claimants um, has really exploded. And, and so you have a very broad understanding of, of religion, um right with a sort of the 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 ultimate is what you saw is a sort of a semi-functionalist kind of uh understanding of of those concerns that go to ultimate matters well that's going to really be quite various with respect to um uh the 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 sorts of things that people think are of ultimate importance or the or or of of, of ultimately true or all that ultimately matter for them um And you often argue in the language of religious liberty for all, which is actually in the new piece that I'm writing, one of my hobby horses. I think that that is an unsustainable principle, at least at least if it means um, religious exemption for all from general uh, law. Um, uh, Right. And and so. I guess the question is, we, we've talked a little bit about, about um, minority groups and individuals, um, but when you were talking about COVID restrictions in, your, in the book, you also say that judges should have subjected those claims of exemption. At least maybe you sort of draw a distinction between vaccination maybe requirements and, and other kinds of requirements, but let's just take COVID restrictions to special scrutiny, Um, and you go so far as to say that many claims of religious exemption probably aren't religiously motivated at all. But then you sort of get back into the question, well, but if you're defining religion in this very, very broad way, how can you say that? Um, So how can you reconcile your extremely broad commitment to religious exemption as religious liberty for all? Um, with skepticism about the grounds on which those who increasingly seek exemptions in our day and age, especially in the COVID era, from things like vast vaccination, masking, and other COVID requirements. So, um, so you say a lot about drawing distinctions, but again, those distinctions are going to, to circle back to the question that Mark asked you at the beginning. They're gonna make the problems of polarization worse um, when judges draw them and say actually you're not a religion that's not a religious uh, right isn't that gonna isn't that sort of gonna come back to bite the thesis uh, on its on its you know on its butt on its behind um, right what what do, what do you think about all that Tom
1: yeah great question so let me start start off I mean religious liberty for all is a is a slogan uh, uh, right it's not a thesis Uh in fact, I have occasionally committed tweets, uh, and those tweets have occasionally contained hashtag religious liberty for all. I confess. I'm not called to this. tweets
2: anymore. Tom. I don't
1: know what they're called. What are they called now? On on X, they don't have
2: a name, but 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 we can we can go with tweets for the moment. Um,
1: uh, yeah. So at any rate, that's so that's clearly a slogan. Uh, what it's meant to communicate is. That a presumptive right to act on one's faith, right, it should be extended to the whole range of faiths, you know, with with the definitional limit question there that we've been we've been talking about. Uh, it is a presumption. Uh, it's uh, not not an absolute, uh, right? Historically. Uh, we, we we have in state uh, in in the historic founding era state constitutions and other documents phrases like the peace and safety of the state public peace public order uh, maybe substantial threats to public order, order the Supreme Court has said things like that uh, private rights and you know in 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 some case, uh, cases uh, and so that's you know, that's, to, to use another constitutional phrase, that's ordered liberty. The, the challenge then is to take that concept and apply it to a world in which there's much more government regulation. Uh, and so that it can't be that whatever the government says uh, is, a, is a private right or is a matter of public order, uh, it, it, that that's enough to defeat it, unless we're essentially going to, admit that the modern state should dramatically scope uh, restrict the scope of free exercise of religion
2: but, but wait tom but but isn't the problem not just greater government regulation it's greater government regulation in the context of explosive pluralism of a kind that madison yeah. when madison was writing he could not have conceived of a situation in which we've got we've got we've got no nothing like the kind yeah. of unity of of society of cultural mores and so on that that they had so isn't that also what's going on
1: no i i, I you are you are right about that that increases the the number of of uh, challenges and the and the and the maybe the complexity of doing uh, of, of doing the exemptions analysis it also means that there are many more cases in which the law is going to come in conflict with religious beliefs so you know which it's it's a bigger it's a bigger problem uh, it means there will be more suffering if there aren't exemptions and it'll mean there will be more challenges on courts about drawing the lines for exemptions uh, I, I would still say that it's you know that it's worth uh, worth doing we have a lot of tools, for assessing the effect on of, of a religious practice on society, and on others, and 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 you know the book go, tries to go through them. Um, so as to the COVID vaccination uh, cases, uh, there are certainly cases of of unquestionable sincere religious motivation by people who um, believe in the, you know that the. The, the derivation from fetal cell lines catholic beliefs etc et but we also have reason to question a lot of the claims here we have real evidence here that a lot of the claims it's not that they're not sincere it's not that they're not deeply felt it's that they're not religious they're coming from an objection to to vaccines in general or or uh, or the uh, kind of the political objections to uh, to, in the COVID context. Um, and we know that because of the, you know, vast number of uh, uh, online, a large number of online forms offering sort of boilerplate objections. If you want uh, to, these people are saying online, if you want to object to a vaccine, here's a thing that you can download, and it's just boilerplate Uh, language in a context where this is highly politicized. So we've got good reason to think that a lot of them are not truly um, religious. That does, that I think at least activates two things. One is there are reasons to give the government more scope, or maybe a private employer, if it's that context, more scope to question sincerity. In general, we don't question sincerity in religious exemption claims. It's really hard to do. Nathan Chapman, however, has made an argument that we ought to be questioning sincerity more often as part as part of this. this we need to be able to do that in order to strike any kind of balance, sort of responding to some of the concerns that, that you have, Mark. Um, I don't know whether we can, you know, double down on insincerity in general, but certainly in this case, there's a reason to give the government a bit more room to, to question sincerity. And then the second thing is, if there are going to be a lot of, in, of claims that are not religiously driven, then that does increase the government's interest, right? If a lot of people are going to do this, if it's not a small group As you often have a small group of religious believers, it's not like that here. Then that's going to increase the government's interest in, uh, you know, in regulating because of uh, it'll increase the spread of the, of the disease. Um, So I think one of those two things is justifiable in the vaccination cases: either closer attention to sincerity, or else at least factoring in the number of claims, the likely number of claims. Into the into the compelling interest analysis, and just really briefly, this idea that if there would be a lot of claims, that's a reason to deny exemption, is not a new sort of thing. You know that you that I've come up with for this case, a a long-standing reason why we don't have a lot of t- tax exemptions specifically for religion is the concern about self-interest and encouraging and incentivizing people to make to couch their claims as religious we do have some religious tax exemptions like the church exemptions in the irs code but they're limited and in that case the irs gets a lot of room to decide what's a church uh and and i think that same dynamic could be said to be operating in the in the vaccine cases now are these perfect lines no Um, I just would only say, um, make the kind of Winston Churchill point, a regime of exemptions under judicial management is the worst system there is, except for all the others. Um, In a polarized society, legislators in red states and blue states are just not going to reach the Unpolarizing um, results, ba- balanced results, without some sort of push from the courts towards, uh, or either accommodate, you know, towards accommodation in this case.
2: All right. Well, so that answer uh, provoked many, many other questions from me, but I, but for the sake of time, um, I want to ask you uh, uh, one one last one because this is one that kind of frames the more general or broader philosophical perspective from which the book is coming and. And at, both at the beginning and at the end of the book, you discuss the importance of adopting what you call an ironic uh, perspective or point of view in engaging with these conflicts, right, the, the conflicts of religious freedom. And for, for me, it was a pleasure to see this because you and I uh, in the past on, on uh, Mirror of Justice, on the blog to which we you know, both contribute and have contributed now for it's been now all, about 10 years, uh, maybe more. Um, for for you or maybe more for me, um, but um, we we see this this issue maybe a, a little bit differently, and so maybe you can just explain to listeners what an ironic perspective or point of view means in this context and how you intend it uh, as a kind of uh, maybe framing or perspectival uh, you know mechanism for the for the book. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, so um, I did a little bit on this in the book in the in the conclusion, and I'm looking forward to doing more about this in, a, in an article that I'm coming out uh, with uh, in uh, Wayne State Law Review. That's that's going to di- directly engage the things that you and I have discussed before in your, uh, you know, your great book on the tra- tragedy of religious freedom. Right. Uh, and um, uh that's the that's the that's the juxtaposition here that we've argued about is a, an ironic versus a tragic approach to difficult issues. So, what do I mean by the ironic approach? It does not mean David Letterman sort of snark, like throwing a TV off the top of a building and kind of just guffawing about it because nothing really matters anyway. So we're just all kind of ironic. Um, I'm appealing to the use of irony um, by Reinhold Niebuhr in the book from the early 1950s called The Irony of American History. And that book, which was very influential at the time and remains influential among uh, a range of thinkers, uh, argued that the um, that American history could be understood and particularly the sort of the meaning of the Cold War could be understood with the uh, with the perspective of irony. And irony here means uh, that uh, there are um, there are virtues, there are vices, there is good, there is evil, and those things should be identified. But all of us have a tendency in th- even in the necessary task, Of identifying good and virtue as against evil and vice to overstate the case to overstate our own virtue to overstate the vice or understate the virtue of those on the other side. And we can fall into real problems by doing that we will find, for example, that the things we say about our opponent apply to us as well. That was Niebuhr's warning to the United States in the Cold War. They had to fight Soviet communism. It was a threat, a serious threat, but America had to watch out that it didn't display the same vices that it was com- complaining about and rightly complaining about. So one example is communism is dangerous because the, the assertion was, and I believe it, because it asserted that it had the answer to history, that if you... If you identified and, 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 and uh, w- identified with the interests of the proletariat, you would find the key to history and we would reach a utopia, or at least a m- m- c- significantly better society. Americans criticized that, but they had their own neighbor said their own form of, uh, of sort of utopian thinking of their own we've understood the key to history. What is it? It's freedom. It's liberty that's what we have in the United States and we are the you know the the source of that and that could lead us into the same kind of arrogance. Uh, uh, Again, maybe not at the same level, but uh, the but but a dangerous kind of arrogance well I see the same thing going on here in in our debates uh, today I, for example, I think that when conservative Christians. Uh, make arguments against Islam in an effort to restrict Muslims' freedom or equality, it's ironic that much of what they say could, is applied back on them, right? You are, they say, they say Islam is not, Pat Robertson, when he was alive, said Islam is not a religion, it's a political movement trying to take away your rights. Well, how often have we heard that about about conservative Christians um, and it's unfair in both cases. Uh, uh, you can have your religion Muslims but don't bring it out here in front of the rest of us. don't wear the um, the, the, the veil don't don't f- arbitrate your business disputes according to Sharia law which is a dangerous thing. Well Christians keep your beliefs to yourself to Uh, same, you know, same thing. I think because uh, I think the same sort of ironies apply in the attacks on between same sex couples and religious objectors, because there are parallels between the group, two groups, when religious conservatives say, we're not going after orientation, we're only going after conduct or we're not going after private conduct we're only going we're only denying civil marriage the, those same kinds of distinctions are used against religious believers you can believe whatever you want just don't act on it you can uh, you can believe it in your church you can believe it in your home just don't bring it into the workplace or into your foster care services and both sides make these sort of Statements about the other with no apparent sense of irony about what it would say about their own claims. What this approach presumes is that there is virtue and vice. This is not both sidesism, and it's not necessarily saying that the two sides are equal. And by the way, I don't, I don't generally say that that the religious right is worse than progressives uh, on this. I'm i think it's a very complicated question you know who's more responsible for polarization in general on religious liberty progressives are are equally or more responsible responsible but the ironic point of view is not that there's no difference that not that there's not relative differences in virtues and vices it just says um, uh, beware uh, when you um, push your, your virtue too far we all tend to do that i think it's different from a tragic vision which tends to say, and Mark, you can correct correct me on this, that 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 there's really not sort of any common metric that the groups can be talking about here. Um, you, there's not a, a, a thing, an overarching thing that you can appeal to to say, oh well, you're saying this, and but you're not you're not giving it to them. You're not following the common metric. Um, I think that civil rights protections and civil liberties protections are by nature general. uh, And therefore there is at least some room to make those sorts of arguments.
0: So these are, these are really very interesting topics. I wish we could go on longer. Uh, we, We can't, I will say one thing, Tom, as you're speaking, it occurs to me that ironic perspective, an ironic perspective requires a kind of detachment from the situation and to be able to look at yourself, right? You have to be able to look outside from outside onto yourself. And I just think we have really lost that, uh, a lot of that right now, the idea of self-criticism. I, I think maybe it's, al- it's always hard for humans to do that, but I think especially now when we are in our, our two camps, it's extremely hard to look at, at your own, um, own contributions to this anyway, which we could go on longer, we, we just can't. So uh, I wanna say thank you, Tom, for, for joining us this afternoon. It's been great having you with us. Um, uh, Mark, you want to say anything? Yes,
2: absolutely. Of course. You know, thank you so much, Tom. This was this was wonderful. And congratulations again on the book. Uh, It's very interesting, listeners. You ought to get yourself a copy. Uh, It's it's a religious, religious liberty or religious freedom in a polarized age. Right, right. Um, Available from
0: on Amazon and a bookstore near you. So, uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For for listeners, this is Mark Mavsessian and Mark DiGirolami from the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's with another episode of Legal Spirits. You can find past episodes archived on all kinds of streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, Android, and also on our website, lawandreligionforum.org. That's it for this episode. See you next time.